everyone. Welcome to today's episode of MD Talk. I'm your host, LaQuinta Jernigan, and today I am absolutely thrilled to be joined by Adam Sampson, who is Head of Clinical Delivery Operations at Walgreens. A little bit about Adam before we hand it over to him. For 12 years, Adam has conducted clinical trials across multiple therapeutic areas as a coordinator, monitor, project manager, and executive within academia, sites, CROs, pharma, tech, and retail pharmacy. He currently serves as head of clinical delivery operations at Walgreens, where his primary role is to operationalize existing locations to conduct clinical trials. Adam also serves as an adjunct faculty at the George Washington University in the Master's in Clinical Research Administration program, as well as serving as a core member in the Decentralized Trials and Research Alliance Working Group to map the participant journey in decentralized clinical trials. So to say, Adam, that you are a busy man is an understatement, but thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to MD Talk. Thanks so much, LaQuinta. And yeah, no, I'm, I'm really excited to be here. I'm an avid listener of, of the podcast here and a lot of what you've been putting forward um, as, as part of MD Talks is really what we're focused on here at Walgreens as we build out this new clinical trial business. So I appreciate you giving me the time to come on and um, chat with you and uh, your listeners. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Adam. And, you know, today you and I, we're going to be discussing disparity and clinical trial participation, industry innovations to improve health equity, the accelerated movement towards decentralized trials, and what all of this means for patient accessibility, diversity, and engagement, and what we're to make of all of it. These are topics that we've discussed on this podcast and on our blog many, many times, and they're all things that MD Group is passionate about, that I'm passionate about, that you are passionate about. Um, So today, I'm really excited to be discussing how Walgreens is making a commitment and taking action to tackle some of our industry's biggest challenges in these areas. Before we dig in, I want to just give us a quick reminder on why clinical trial diversity is such an important topic. So 20% of drugs have a variation in responses across ethnic groups, and yet 75% of clinical trial participants are white, 11% are Hispanic or Latinx, and fewer than 10% are Black and Asian. So we have a lot of work to do. Um, So I guess this is a really good segue, Adam, to talk about what Walgreens is doing to address the issue of inequality and clinical trial access and participation. Yeah, it's a great place to to dive in. And you might have noticed, so um, we, we launched the clinical trial business publicly about two months ago now. And in our, you know, relatively brief um, press release where we announced the initial services, um, you'll note that my boss, the chief clinical trials officer here at Walgreens, Renita Tandon, um, she actually highlighted the the same statistics there that you just did, right? Um, Recognizing the importance of moving the needle on that, as well as uh, Walgreens uh, and our ambitions to be able to leverage the, the footprint that we have, the trust in communities to really uh, make a big difference in that way. I, I wanted to start a little farther back, though, and just say that this has been coming for quite some time in terms of Walgreens, not just on the clinical trial side, but in healthcare in general. So Roz Brewer joined us as CEO back in spring of last year 
um, and you know right away hit the ground running, did some phenomenal things during COVID. And uh, in fall of last year, announced Walgreens Health, which the clinical trial business is part of. Significance of this being, you know, we have approximately 160 million lives that we service um, as part of Walgreens, uh, 9,000 stores with about 78% of the, the U.S. population living within five miles of a Walgreens. So, you know, we're everywhere in the U.S. Um, and uh, we've really tried and to, to make a strategic effort to be um, in the places that are hard to reach sometimes, where folks in underserved communities, um, medical deserts uh, are located. So a little over 50% of our stores are in socially vulnerable areas. And it's this kind of vision of how do we bring clinical trials now uh, as an additional option, as a care option, into these communities. Um, so it's on this foundation that we've been building as part of Walgreens Health for, for the past year, uh, including opening a, a number of what we call health corner locations. So these are, uh, you know, a footprint within certain Walgreens that are staffed with a registered nurse and registered pharmacist, a private health room um, for chronic care management, um, uh, another important type of, you know, point of care diagnostics that can be done. Um, that has really set us up on the clinical trials team um, to, to plug into an infrastructure um, that just reaches into pretty much every community in the U.S. and helps us to partner with um, our, our clients, pharmaceutical companies, med device companies, um, to really you know, reach populations uh, and get that diversity representation that we're looking for in clinical trials. It's such a... I mean, for lack of a better phrase, good idea. Because when you think about one of the biggest barriers to participating in clinical trials, it's truly logistics, right? It takes, you know, when you're living in certain areas, when you're living out in rural locations, it's just not convenient to travel very far to get to a site. Um, it could take a lot of time out of your day. And then another barrier to diversity in clinical trials is, you know, just that element of trust um, and not having providers within your community. And what Walgreens are doing is they're kind of tackling both of those issues. You know, most people live within five miles of our Walgreens. These Walgreens are staffed with members of their community, especially the ones that, as you mentioned, are um, kind of in these socially vulnerable areas. So you're kind of tackling both of those issues with one stone. Um, and I just think that it makes so much sense to be able to, you know, go to the same Walgreens that you'll go to pick up your, your Tylenol or your any other over-the-counter prescription or medication where you're going to get your daily prescriptions, you know the pharmacist, it's somewhere in your neighborhood where you potentially may even know the people who work there, and now you can go there for certain elements of participating in a clinical trial. Um, so I think that um, it's, it's very exciting to hear that this is where Walgreens are, the direction Walgreens is moving in. Now, I know that, you know, emerging technologies, you know, they play a huge part in, in this initiative. Can, can you tell us more about the unique ways that you're leveraging technology to improve patient diversity. Sure. So, uh, and just to touch on one of your points there around uh, trust and the ability of pharmacists, you know, being that kind of trusted provider that people are accustomed to seeing every day. There was some research done by by Cisgrip uh, about ten years ago. I think it was like 2013. 
um, actually demonstrating um, the effectiveness of having pharmacists deliver basic clinical research education um, to to you know patients or consumers as they uh, as they had their normal interactions with them. And there were surveys done before and after, really demonstrating that in having these type of engagements um, afterwards, consumers you know, were more informed and, and more willing to think about participating in clinical trials. Um, and I think that's what it's going to take to, to really, you know, that grassroots clinical research education where we're not necessarily just saying, here's an advertisement for a specific trial. Um, just now we're seeing retail pharmacy, you know, make a big move into clinical trials. And a big part of that is, I think, technology as, as what you were, you know, you know your, your other question the fact that now we have, you know, uh, better access to, I mean, even things like broadband access, right? I mean, that wasn't 10 years ago as widespread where we could have that in, you know, pretty much across the nation. Um, but then you take additional technologies that we're all talking about as part of these things daily, right? When it comes to e-consent and e-source and, um the ability to, to conduct trials via um, telemedicine as in addition to the fact that the industry just seems at a point where we're ready for it, right? So we have pharmaceutical companies, CROs, others who have now, as a result of the pandemic, really, right, um, we're put in a position where we had to utilize some of these things and recognize that many of them can work in a lot of instances, Um to, to really bring access to, to people who otherwise not might not be in a position to travel two hours. I mean, we've heard statistics around that, right? I mean, the average person lives somewhere around two hours from the closest clinical research site, um, which is prohibitive, right, for a lot of people, even if they want to participate. So we're going to be leveraging those technologies here at Walgreens as part of our core strategy. We will be not looking to do clinical trials using you know, paper source documents and, and you know, loading Walgreens stores up with just vast amounts of binders that we would have had to do when you know you and I initially started in this industry. We now have the flexibility to, to use e-source, to use e-regulatory applications, and to be able to also use that as a, a way to ensure quality in our clinical trials that is difficult with paper. And I say that and that, you know, if you if you're recording everything on paper and you have paper at the site, that is a real limitation because you have to travel out to that site in order for someone to independently perform quality control activities, right? Or source data verification. The fact that now we can have a centralized team that we're going to build here at Walgreens who can do a lot of that remotely. Um, to ensure in real time that we have quality and consistency across the network of sites that we're building. Um, I think that new technology that's emerging is really helping to give both the pharmaceutical med device sponsors as well as large companies like Walgreens um, you know, a vote of confidence that, that this can be done and this can be done in a way that is highly compliant. I think you're absolutely right. And I think if, if our gift to generations to come is to not have the burden of those giant binders <laughs> that I think that we have contributed to this to this industry significantly. But but I, I think I wanted to touch on one of the points that you made about 
now being the right time. And I think that you're absolutely right um, because COVID really helped, obviously, in ways that we've discussed many times before on this podcast. But one of the things also, what one of the ways in which COVID helped when it comes to technology and, and, and us being ready now to adapt some of these new technologies is with broadband internet. Because it wasn't until the pandemic that cities, governments took notice of the fact that you had all of these areas, these rural locations that just did not have adequate broadband access. And when children had to go to remote learning, it became a priority that you can't leave kids behind just because they don't have the tools to participate in school remotely. And so that gave a significant boost because we can't really expect every community to have the tools to utilize some of these technologies we're talking about, especially going into the home and doing things like that without the basic fundamental access to broadband internet. And I think so COVID really helped with that. So you're absolutely right. We're, We're now in a time where we're ready. More people have access to be able to use these tools. Sponsors are, you know, more empowered to look at things in a different way because of the ways that we had to work within the pandemic. So it feels really, really right to be moving in this in this next step and and getting rid of all the paper, making things a lot more accessible. This initiative, Adam, it's it's driven by a huge amount of real world data. Where has this data come from? And what are some of the core findings um, that you know informed your plan of action, so to speak? So we have, um, as part of our core group here at, at on the Walgreens clinical trials team, you know we have operations folks like myself. Um, we have people who are focused on digital optimization and the patient experience and making sure that the, the patient journey really makes sense. Um, and we also um, we have uh, a growing team on the real world evidence um, and data science side. Um, we want to be very thoughtful about how we engage with our consumers. I mean, at the end of the day, at Walgreens, you know, everything that you know, our primary constituents are our consumers, are our patients, and we want to be very good, good stewards of their information. But yeah, it gives us the ability as a as a covered entity to be able to engage. Um, with uh, potential research participants within our network um, to determine interest in clinical trials. Uh, and moreover, um, internally, it gives us the ability to, to look at de-identified data and aggregate um, across you know, the, the information that we have across the U.S. to be able to really be more thoughtful about things like site activation. So, this is something that, so my big thing right now that I'm focused on is how do we operationalize a certain amount of our footprint, um, our physical stores, um, to participate in clinical trial activities. And there's many different ways that you can do that. The traditional way is you, you, know, you pick 100 sites, right? You're a sponsor or CRO. You pick X number of sites and you go and you activate all those sites. You do some feasibility to get some sense of, you ask some questions to, to see if they might have the population. Um, but then enrollment starts, and as we all know, you know, 80% of trials either don't meet or fail to meet enrollment uh, goals on time. So, you know, with the, the insights that we have, it gives us the ability to instead try and say, where are the communities where we know 
um, these these patients most likely are, right? Based on insights we're able to gather. So if we're looking at a specific therapeutic area or a specific you know drug that we're looking for um, patients to be taking based on the specific protocol, we can hone in at a hyperlocal level, right, and say, okay, you know these are the areas that are most likely um, to um, to be successful. Um, and put some of that patient identification up front and really drive where we go in terms of activating specific locations. So um, it's definitely a big part of our strategy um, and one that we've, uh, even before I came in, I think, you know, we were laying the the foundation of how we can um, use the information that we have available in a very um, meaningful yet thoughtful way um, to to drive where best to, to bring our clinical trials and how best to offer those clinical trials to, to our consumers. That's great. I mean, I think that looking at it from all of those different angles is the key to success, so to speak, um, because you have to make, you have to just be very mindful of where you're going and, and how you're going to engage within those communities and what those communities' core needs are, what some of their challenges are um, in order for, for the adaption, adaptation to, to happen. So um, that's really interesting how you guys went about that. And one thing that's really exciting to me, sorry, just to build on that a bit is, you know, the so I've, I've had the pleasure now of like actually going out and visiting some stores, right? And uh, I've been in um, New Jersey, I'm going to go to California, I'm here in North Carolina, right? So we, you know, we're very close to the deep south and these different regions that um, uh, we really want to make sure that we understand and being able to, to talk to people at the stores. And I mean, they know their community. So we want to be able to tap into, you know, beyond just we're coming in as a new clinical trial team, but there's just tons of um, really great, you know, Walgreens natives that have been here for 5, 10, 20 years. It's amazing that can tell us, you know, hey, this is going to work in our community or this isn't going to work. We're going to have to go back to the drawing board and think about a different way to approach it. And. What, a, what an amazing opportunity uh, for clinical research to be able to speak to individuals who are in their kind of native habitat. You know, they're coming to the stores, not with clinical research in mind, not with, you know, I need to see a physician. They're coming in there for maybe for diapers, maybe for granola bars, whatever. But you guys have an ap- opportunity to talk to people and their natural habitat about what's going to work for the community in which they live and what's not going to work. I mean, that's invaluable. It's true. Yeah. And I mean, that was a lot of what, so during COVID, um, Walgreens, I, I've learned some about just the massive effort. I mean, I wasn't here when it happened, but six, something like 63 million vaccines, uh, COVID vaccines were administered at, at Walgreens. And there was, you know, a massive effort, um, you know, to your earlier point about trust and helping people in these communities understand. And I've, I've heard stories about you know, Walgreens going into, you know, faith-based organizations and other places where, you know, where their community, you know, where their, the people in their community are, um, even outside of Walgreens, to try and help provide, you know, information and, you know, move away from all of the misinformation that was coming out um, to, to really be a, a trusted, you know, partner in the community and, and to help, you um, help people make an informed decision about whether or not to get vaccinated. So it's cool to be part of a company that has some history in that and to be able to say, hey, this is something we could 
really, you know, use in the clinical trial industry. Yeah, that's awesome. And we've talked about using those tactics um, so many times on this podcast and how there's some of the simplest things that you can do, but they have the biggest impact. Just working with community leaders, faith-based leaders, going into community centers, um, and, and it shows with the, the work that you're doing now. I think one of the biggest questions that we we have on this this show and that I hear from colleagues in the industry are, you know, how quickly is all of this going to to help? You know, like, when are we going to reach a point where we have parity and patient representation in clinical trials? How long is it all going to take? I mean, what are your thoughts about that, Adam? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very encouraged by, you know, these kind of discussions that you're hearing increasingly often within industry. Um, in addition, of course, the FDA coming out with their draft guidance and now, you know, the move to the Hill on actually like trying to set this, some of this stuff into law so that, you know, it'll be a requirement for, it'll be standard that when submitting your IND as part of that, right, you're submitting your diversity plan. And if you don't meet those, you know, diversity um, goals, then you know, you'll have to answer for that um, when it comes time to, to try and get that drug approved. And that might mean either not getting that drug approved if it's really significantly, um, you know, deviated from what the actual patient population looks like for that drug, um, or it would mean very expensive and lengthy follow-up studies. So I think a combination of us now being in a period where we all, you know, deeply understand and are working uh, at multiple levels, at sites, at CROs, at sponsors, um, to try and find ways to do this. And you combine that with some some regulatory teeth that, you know, come along with it, which unfortunately is, is often what we need, right, to, to really drive things forward. Um, I, I'm very optimistic. Um, one thing that's tough in this industry is, you know, the long lead times, right? So we have so many clinical trials that are going right now that are going to be going for the next two years, and then it's going to take another year for that data to be published. And so it does take us a long time in this industry to, to really, I think, see the, the true effects. But I, I am I'm quite optimistic that, you know, in these in the coming, you know, one to two years, that there will be real change in the in the way that we're conducting these studies or the way that we are designing our recruitment plans to make sure that we're hitting those diversity metrics. And I'm seeing that now, especially with, you know, smaller progressive companies and even with large companies. We saw that with COVID-19 vaccines, right? Sponsors slowing down or stopping enrollment and saying, we, we need to wait until we get, you know, more people of color or more, you know, of a certain um, demographic uh, into the study. So we're seeing it now. Um, I think we need to, to really see it at scale. And I think, you know, you and I, you know, if we can come back and talk again in another two or three years, I think that's how long we'll probably have to wait to be able to look back and say like, okay, we feel like we're in a better place. Yeah. I mean, I think that two or three years, it, that's not very long. So if we can come back together in three years and, and, and look back and say, look how far we've come, I think that's success. That's movement or progress. But I have to ask this question, Adam. So, you know, we've talked about the pandemic, you know, and how it's it's changed 
our view on technology and accessibility to technology and everything. But in regards to all of this decentralized clinical trial movement and this movement to creating diversity, just how big do you think that the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter movement, how big of roles have they played in this? Because you know, you and I, we've been in this industry for a while, and the things that we're talking about that aid in decentralized clinical trials, they're not new. They've been around for quite some time. So it does seem like these two, you know, substantial events, the pandemic, Black Lives Matter movement, they've really aided. And I wanted to kind of get your your opinion on that. And do you think that we would be where we are today if it hadn't been for those events? Would we still be in the days of all of this just being some pie in the sky optional um, add-on to a to a trial. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think that we would have gotten there eventually. I think it was heading there, but things like the Black Lives Matter movement, which really shown you know a, a bright light on all of these you know inequities, health inequities, and um, ways that we need to improve you know clinical trials, access to healthcare, just across the board, and you combine that with, yeah, a pandemic, which put us in a position in clinical trials where we really recognized, you know, we were using oftentimes like 90s technology, right, to conduct our day-to-day activities. And it, you know, it it put us in a position where the the public was demanding that we do something about these health inequities. Um, And on our clinical trial side, really, the if we wanted to keep going with our day-to-day work, you know, we couldn't get into the hospitals. Um, so what do we do? We stop the trials, um, or we find some way to, to leverage technology to keep them going. I'm increasingly, and I, you know, not the hugest fan of the term decentralized clinical trials sometimes, just because of the fact that I think it's it's now gotten to a point where like people are getting fatigued just from the the name of it, right? But I'd like to get, yeah, to a point where, you know, we don't need a new term, but just the idea that, like, decentralized trial, right, is just at the heart of it. We're trying to use technology um, and look at trials in a different way so that we can not necessarily need to do them the way that we've done them traditionally. Um, We still need large academic medical centers. We we still need, um, you know, physicians and healthcare practices to participate. We can't do everything virtually. We shouldn't rely 100% on technology. That's not a way to build trust and increase health equity, right? Um, equity is about more than just equality, right? It's about making sure that everybody, you know, has access at, at the level that, you know, makes sense for them based on their, their needs. So I think the intelligent use of technology is really how we're going to get there, Um and our ability to kind of continue to move forward in that direction and not lose ground uh, is, is what's most important from my perspective. How do we do the trials that need to be done in the academic medical centers because that's where the equipment and the expertise are, um, but then utilize you know, smaller clinics um, or Walgreens or patients' homes um, to do the things that we don't need them to go in there for, right? whether that's through um, telemedicine or home health or, or other services that we might be able to provide. Um, all of these things increase complexity in our clinical trials, uh, which is something that we have to account for. Um, but it's the right thing to do. And I think that now we, you know, we're finally at a point where, you know, the technology is there and we're going to make some mistakes along the way. We do highly complicated work, right? Uh, across the industry. 
Um, but we have to be very transparent and learn from things that aren't working and, and kind of, yeah, continue to improve and not, not get stuck in an old way of doing things just because that's the most comfortable because um, obviously, you know, there are shortcomings to that. And we see that, right, with these statistics around um, not enough representation in clinical trials, not enough people enrolled in clinical trials, period, um, and just, you know, a really high um, price tag on, on getting drugs to market. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a, a really good um, place to kind of move to my next question, and that's um, surrounding the work that you do with DTRA. Um, MD Group are, are members of DTRA as well, and I'm assuming that that's, these are some of the things that the organization they're trying to tackle. So can you tell us a little bit more about how you're involved with the organization and the work that you're doing um, with them? Certainly, yeah. I, I'm really proud to be part of the, the DTRA. Um, I joined um, a little more than a year ago, I guess now, and um, was part of the core team to define um, what we wanted our initiatives and deliverables to look like around the, the best practices for conducting decentralized clinical trials. Um, you know, especially back then, it was kind of the Wild West, like we were, there was a lot of exper experimentation going on. Some things were working well, some things weren't working well. So the idea was how do we pull together um, in my favorite way to work, which is this like pre-competitive environment, right? Where literally like I'm sitting side by side, quote unquote competitors, right? Or is there's sponsors, there's sites, there's CROs, there's everybody within the ecosystem um, coming together. And uh, once we came up with, you know, the, the these primary initiatives within the best practices um, domain, um, we, we split off into smaller working groups. And the one that I landed in um, was uh, around the part mapping the participant journey within decentralized clinical trials. Um, so our, some initial uh, work that we did was was um, presented um at DIA recently, just a couple months ago, and it will be made publicly available, these deliverables. And, you know, the purpose behind it is to really, uh, I think increasingly, regardless of the study, but especially when decentralized clinical trials, as I mentioned, right, tend to increase complexity, because if we're saying there's optionality or they go to one place for one visit or one place for another visit, it's critical at the beginning of the study to be able to map that participant's journey um, so that you can identify those areas where people might become disinterested or uh, where they might get confused and not know where to go and then to find ways to kind of mitigate. So um, for the past year or so, along with a, a small group, I've been um, working to, to develop patient journeys, participant journeys, um, using examples from a couple different therapeutic areas and patient profiles. We'll make those publicly available and then um, provide the template so that um, others, if they you know, so wish, can use that to take their clinical trial and, and map out the participant journey and use that as a tool for uh, improving um, patient access, retention, and, and other things around clinical trials. That's awesome. And Adam, honest, honestly, with your, given your um, professional experience and your tenure within this industry, I can't think of a better person suited to be working on something like that. Um, so it's really exciting that 
you're on this subcommittee and that that's the work that you're contributing. I think that, you know, when we first started this podcast, one of the first guests I had mentioned that, you know, in order for us to make any strides in this area of solving the challenge of diversity in clinical trials and accessibility, that we had to come together. We had to get out of our our four walls and and collaborate with each other, with other pharma, with our competitors. And it's that's what DTRA is doing. And that's what's going to take in order for us to solve this problem. So um, we're really proud to be members of DTRA. And like I said, I think that you know, seeing the individuals they have doing the work like yourself puts gives me a lot of faith and um, hope that we're going to actually be able to do some some real work here. Absolutely. Well, Adam, I can't thank you enough for being with us today on MD Talk. I, I've so enjoyed our conversation. Um, and I think that what you're doing, what Walgreens doing is really, really special. And I, I, I feel that movements and initiatives like this, you know, we're going to have to see it replicated amongst other organizations and businesses, but that this is what it's going to take. And this is this just proof that we're, we're starting that, that journey to, to achieving the goals that we want in this arena. So, um, so thank you so much, Adam, for being here today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And, you know, this is really, um, this is something I'm very passionate about and clinical trials in general, right? LaQuinta, you and I go back a bit and you know we we often have great conversations about the state of the industry and um this new uh work that i'm doing with walgreens is is really i feel like a culmination of a lot of things coming together and super excited about it um if anyone you know is out there is interested in talking more um feel free to reach out to me on linkedin i'm always glad to chat that's great and i'm, I'm looking forward to that post three-year conversation, Adam, where we can look back and, and see how far we've come. Love it. So for everyone out there, if you've enjoyed this conversation, please rate, review, subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening, because it helps people like you who are committed to driving industry change find us. For more content around key issues in the clinical research industry, you can follow us on social media at MD Group International on Twitter, or you can find us on LinkedIn by searching MD Group, visiting us at mdgroup.com. As Adam said, you can learn more about Walgreens initiatives by going to their website or following Adam on LinkedIn. Until next time, be well and take care.